everyone, I'm Amanda Borshaldan and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. This week, I'm speaking with an up-and-coming high-risk pregnancy specialist, Dr. Joshua Rosenblum. The Harvard Medical School-trained magna cum laude immigrated to Israel a few years ago and now works from Jerusalem's Hadassah Ein Kerem Medical Campus. Rosenblum was fresh from delivering a baby a few minutes earlier via cesarean section and could have been called away at any moment to deliver another. So our conversation is concise, fast-paced, and informative. It is also based on my own curiosity as a 45-year-old woman who has just entered her eighth month of pregnancy. I found very little information for pregnancy in my age bracket online, and I wanted to set the record straight for others. Obviously, this conversation is sponsored by Tfu Tfu Tfu. Hi, Josh. Thank you so much for joining me. Where am I finding you today? Hi, Amanda. It's great to be here. Um, today you're finding me at work at Hadassah Inkarim. And I know that your work is quite hectic. You've been pulled into delivery rooms throughout the whole day that we've been uh, trying to connect. And so we will be as concise but informative as possible. So again, thank you for your time. Now, as you know, this conversation is extremely self-serving. I've just started my eighth month at a 40, as a 45-year-old, almost 46-year-old. So tell us briefly, what is your specialty to begin with? Uh, my specialty is maternal fetal medicine, which includes high-risk pregnancy and ultrasound. And how did you get into this field? I've been privy to your CV, and really you could have gone into anything you wanted to do. Thanks. Um, I was in medical school, and I thought I would become a cardiologist. And then I did a rotation on uh, with high-risk pregnant patients, and it just caught my eye. It was really interesting to me. I really enjoy that there's a mother, there's a baby, there's two patients instead of one, and you have to deal with the whole spectrum of all the medical problems plus pregnancy on top, which is very interesting to me. Well, we're glad to have you. Obviously, I speak for womankind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, what would be a high-risk pregnancy? What do you see? Okay, so there's different kinds of high-risk pregnancies. Um, I usually divide it into high-risk because of the mother or because of the baby or sometimes because of both. So high-risk pregnancies can be in mothers who have underlying medical problems. It could be diabetes, high blood pressure, cancer, heart disease, any kind of underlying medical problem that's not uh, that's a little more complicated it would be a high-risk pregnancy. Um, also, or if there's a problem with the baby, it could be a good problem like twins or triplets, or it could be that there's some kind of syndrome with the baby or birth defect or something like that. And sometimes there's also problems with prior pregnancies, like somebody who had a preterm birth in the past or other complications in prior pregnancies. All those kinds of people usually arrive to the high-risk specialist. Okay. Now, when I just uh, realized that I was pregnant, again, at age 45, I looked for all sorts of information about, well, one, the chances of me getting pregnant, and number two, the chances of it surviving. And I really found that there was a paucity of information. Can you lay out a little bit about what it is to be an older mother? Sure. So first of all, um, the chances of conception when you're older, if we start with that, obviously decrease with age, which I think most people appreciate. So in your mid-20s, there's about a 25 to 30% chance of getting pregnant in each cycle, in each month. And then in the mid-30s, it starts to go down. And after 35, even more. After 40, the chance of getting pregnant any one month is about 5%, which is much lower. So first of all, it's less common. If somebody is pregnant, then there's more complication, or there's can be more complications. The risk of miscarriage really increases with age of the mother. So where somebody's under 30, it's about 12, 15% per pregnancy chance of miscarriage in the beginning. After age, after age 45, it's over up to 90%. So there's a higher risk of miscarriage. 
And there's also a higher risk if everything, you know, if, if somebody gets pregnant and there's no miscarriage, then there's a higher risk of complications, um, including uh, genetic problems like Down syndrome, where the risk really goes up with age. And there's also increased risks of uh, stillbirth and of problems with birth weight, like low birth weight, the baby not being the right size at delivery, um, high blood pressure in pregnancies, diabetes in pregnancy, all kinds of problems increase with age. Now, you mentioned over 40, and I saw these figures as well, but I didn't see anything over, you know, 45 and up. Is is that it's, the, your experience as well? Yeah, over four. I mean, it's just so rare, spontaneous pregnancy over 45. So the risk of miscarriage, you know, is higher. Um, the risk of getting pregnant or the chance of getting pregnant is lower after 45. And the other risks increase definitely with age too. Now, one of the studies that I did find in English, I'm talking about, yes. was based out of research from uh, Jerusalem in, in the ultra-Orthodox community. Are you familiar with studies such as this? Yes. Okay, and, and one of the findings seemed to be that the more children you have, the less likely it will be that you will miscarry after uh, age 40 or plus, plus, plus. Why would that be? That's a really interesting question, um, and I don't think anyone knows for sure. The most common cause of miscarriage in general, and certainly when you're old, when someone's older, is a genetic problem that from the beginning the embryo just wasn't genetically right. There was something really wrong, and so there's a miscarriage, which that does increase with age. On the other hand, there's we do know that people who've been pregnant before it's not a first pregnancy. They have generally better outcomes in the second pregnancy. There's all kinds of theories why that might be. There's been some research also from here from Professor Yagel. Um, and uh, at Hadassah about this, that the uterus has some kind of memory that sort of once there's a successful pregnancy, it uh, does better in subsequent pregnancies. So that could definitely be a factor. Also, somebody who has succeeded in having many pregnancies before, just statistically, the chance of having another one is probably higher than somebody who has had trouble getting pregnant or has had multiple miscarriages in the past. Really fascinating. And are you aware of similar research throughout the world? I'm not familiar. I mean, I am familiar with some of the research throughout the world. It's pretty, it's not very common pregnancy after 45 in general, um, and most of it is IVF. And certainly the phenomenon in Israel of grand multiparal women, that means somebody with five or more children before, um, is something that's very, it's very common in Israel, but it's less common in the rest of the developed world. You know, Israel has the highest fertility rate of any of the OECD countries, and uh, we see that also in the ultra-Orthodox population, but also in the non-ultra-Orthodox population. But I was not aware of that statistic. It makes a lot of sense to me just looking around my neighbors. <laughs> yes, for sure. The fertility rate in Israel is about three, more or less, where the replacement rate is 2.1. That means if every woman has 2.1 children, whatever 0.1 means, then that replaces the population. In Israel, it's a little, it's around three. And everywhere else in the developed, like the OECD countries, it's uh, much, much lower than that. In many countries, it's below that replacement level. So the population is shrinking. Now, before we speak about fertility treatments, which are more prevalent here than any other place I know about, let's talk about prenatal screening. And mm -hmm. in the nine years since I was pregnant, they came out with a new test, or at least I wasn't aware of it previously, called NIPT. Yes. What is this test? So NIPT is a really interesting and effective test. Basically, all the time, the baby and the placenta are releasing a little bit of genetic material of DNA into the mom's bloodstream, which is normal. That's natural part of, of development. And some very smart people realized if you take some blood from the mom, then you can figure out which is the genetic material that came from the baby and from the pregnancy and then check if it's genetically 
okay or not. So basically, it's a blood test. So it's non-invasive. It's not dangerous to the mother or to the baby. You take some blood, and then they check in the lab to see what's the risk of Down syndrome and other related con- similar conditions. And these conditions, as far as I understand it, are all conditions that would not necessarily cause a spontaneous abortion, correct? Correct. I mean, there is an increased rate of spontaneous abortion with Down syndrome and also Turner syndrome. But uh, most of these are conditions that, that don't cause spontaneous abortion or miscarriage. So, And some of them, you don't even have ultrasound signs of the condition. So it's a, it's a very effective screening test. In Israel, it's private still, so people have to go privately, look it up online, and sometimes there's a reimbursement from Kupot Cholim. It depends like what level insurance the person has. In America, where I came from, obviously, it's uh, much more accepted. I would say it's already covered by most insurance companies, and it's really the first-line screening test for almost everybody for risk of Down syndrome. That's really fascinating. I remember in my first two pregnancies, my sister-in-law, who was a physician in, in the States and in Canada at the time, she had so many fewer tests than I did. We had so many more ultrasounds. And now, of course, I go to the OBGYN and every single visit I have an ultrasound. Can That's, you compare between the, the two continents, the two countries? Yes, yes. Um, there's definitely, I think, more testing here than in America. Um, first of all, I mean, the beginning of pregnancy is similar, but one thing that we have here that we don't really have in America is what's called the Skira Mukdemet, which is the early anatomy scan. So everyone's recommended to do at least once in pregnancy a big ultrasound by a doctor, or in America it's done by a technician usually, who checks the heart and the head and all the organs in the baby to make sure everything is normal. In America, that's usually from 18 to 20 weeks. Here we can do it. They do it late. We do it later at around 21 to 23 weeks. But there's also the early scan from 14 to 16 weeks, which is something that doesn't uh, really exist in America, for example. And that's like one a big example. The use of ultrasound in every visit. There's many doctors in America who also do every visit just to check on things. Um, there's no recommendations also in Israel to do every time an ultrasound. But I think a lot of us do. Just um, people want to see the baby. You want to check the heart rate, and if you have an ultrasound machine, it's easier. You see the baby that way too. Now, what do people do with the information gathered from these prenatal tests? Is that different between the two countries as well? So that's also a really interesting question. Of course, it really depends on the person's background and so on. One thing that we have in Israel that we don't have in America mostly is the ability, the right to terminate pregnancy really until the until 40 weeks, like until full term or even after. Depending, of course, on the condition, there can't be an elective termination so late, but if there's a very severe birth defect, then um, there can be approval by the committee and uh, and you can have a termina- somebody can have a termination of pregnancy very late, which in America, usually after about 20 to 24 weeks, depending on the state, some places a little later, that's not an option. What that does is put a lot of pressure on the patients and on the doctors to continue very close follow-up of the baby until delivery. Uh, I don't know if you read, there was a great article by somebody I know, a colleague of mine, Javi Korkowski, which was in the Atlantic a few years ago. She's an American MFM and she, a high-risk specialist. Sorry, she came to Israel and she realized uh, what it's like here when even at 40 weeks, if you see something tiny in ultrasound that might say that maybe there's a problem, then you could start to do a whole investigation because the patient may choose in the end to terminate the pregnancy. In America, that's not an option. After about 24 weeks, of course, we check on the baby, but there's nothing to do about it. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site.
Now, with this NIPT, uh, I did the test this time. I decided not to have the amniocentesis, which always freaked me out because it's this ginormous needle plunging in next to the most precious thing that you're going. (laughs) Felt ginormous the last time I did it. Mm -hmm. And and so I asked uh, one of the ultrasound doctors what would be the difference. And he said, well, it's about... 0.1% 0.1% uh, more definite if you do the amniocentesis. And are you finding that people are doing both of these tests just for that 0.1%? Um, I find that most people who do amniocentesis don't bother with the NIPT because, uh, I mean, the, the amniocentesis should really find everything. So people decide. They decide what level of risk they're willing to take if they want the amniocentesis or not. If they... Um, and then they decide based on that. So most people don't do both. Also in America, it's recommended to do one or the other. In Israel, there's more pressure to do amniocentesis. I think the rate here is much higher than in America, although I don't know the exact statistics. And part of it is that there's a recommendation from the Ministry of Health from age 35 to do amniocentesis. It's covered by the Ministry of Health, not even by the Kupor Cholim. So there's a lot of pressure to do an amnio here. When I went for one of my tests, uh, a sugar tolerance test, uh, you're basically in a room and you drink the most disgusting liquid ever. And then you have to wait with a whole bunch of other pregnant women in these weird armchairs. And I felt initially like one of the oldest people in the world there because everyone else was in their 20s. And then in walked this woman and we got to talking and she asked me, is this your first child? And I said, no, this is actually my seventh. And she said, this is my first and I've been trying for 10 years and I'm 53 and I was floored and so how many cases like this are you seeing I've seen quite a uh, there's a lot of cases like that I don't um in Israel you can have IVF until you're 54 like before the 54th birthday that's the law they can do IVF um, and um after about 41, usually you use donor eggs, but there is the ability to have to carry a baby until 54. And I've had a few patients here already at that age who either have been trying for a long time and didn't succeed and it took a long time to get to that stage, or people who deliberately put off childbearing for whatever reason, or didn't deliberately put it off, but just didn't weren't able to sort of think about fertility earlier in life. So uh, it's definitely uh, common here. We have such a system that's built in to support the fertility treatments. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yes, so there's a few different aspects here to that. First of all, um, there's a right, although it's not covered always by Kupur Khalim or by Mishar to for anyone from age 31 to um, about 40 or 41 to do, uh, from 30, sorry, I think about 31 to about 40, to do what's called Shimur Puryut, which means to basically take eggs to stimulate ovulation and to take eggs from the woman who is not interested at this moment in having a baby and to freeze the eggs to, for later use, which is uh, something that um, you know gives options to people that they don't have everywhere in the world. Then there is a right from Misrat Abriut, from the government, for IVF until age 54 for any couple who doesn't have a child together. Even if both, let's say, people remarried and they have children from a prior marriage, but they want children together, then they have a right even to IVF for that, for um, two children, for multiple cycles, which is something covered by insurance. Where I came from in America, and most of America, there's absolutely no coverage of IVF for most people, and and if people can't afford it, then there's just no option. So here it's a big difference. But it's so common in a way in terms of our thinking of how to make children. I wonder if it increases perhaps false hopes sometimes among people. That's an interesting question. I, I've never seen a study. It could be. I think that there's um, different reasons why people um, 
you know, arrive at a later age. I think some people do, do deliberately put off childbearing for either they haven't found a partner that they want to have children with or career issues or health issues or whatever. So they put off deliberately um, or not deliberately sort of arrive at that state. And then there's some people who maybe say, you know what, I'm in the throes of I'm the good stage of my career. It's not a good time to leave right now. I'm 34. I'm just going to wait a few more years. And then fertility does decline you know, after that, and then they arrive at IVF. So I think some of it is people maybe who really choose to put off deliberately and other people who life happens and, you know, there's not an ability to have children until a later age. But what is the success rate of IVF in older women, for instance? Um, the success rate definitely decreases with age. It also depends on the age of the eggs. So somebody who uses an egg donor will be more tied to the age of the egg donor than somebody who uses her own eggs. Um Somebody who's aged about 30 to 34, the chance of a live birth from one cycle is around 40%. From 35 to 39, it's probably around 30%. These are approximate, of course. And from 40 and up, it's probably 11%. And after 44, people don't use their own eggs usually, so it would probably be higher because it would be a donor egg. So it definitely decreases with age. Okay, but definitely not uh, out of the realm of possibilities. No, it's not out of the realm of possibilities. And I've had a few patients who um, don't use birth control because they either they're uh, ultra-Orthodox and they didn't receive permission from the, they didn't receive basically permission from the rabbi to use it, or they weren't interested or they thought they could never get pregnant. And after many, many years, suddenly there's a pregnancy, their youngest kid is 19, and suddenly they're have a pregnancy, which can be a surprise. So anyone who's having regular periods and having, you know, can theoretically get pregnant. So um, just age alone is not a protect, is not a contraceptive. Hitting a bit too close to home <laughs> sorry, here, Josh. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> My oldest is seventeen, but still, okay. <laughs> okay, sorry. So sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, let me be a warning for the world. In any case, <laughs> what we have talked about is mostly the risks to the fetus in having an older uh, pregnancy. Can you explain a little bit about the risks to the mother as well? Sure. So the main issue, there's two issues with being pregnant at older age. One is that in general, people are less healthy as they age. It's just a natural part of life. So older mothers are more likely to have all kinds of underlying medical problems, which could be diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, obesity, heart problems, having had surgeries before, all kinds of problems. And all those issues can increase the risks to the mother in pregnancy um, from those diseases because a lot of those things can worsen in pregnancy. So that's one thing. Another thing is that just pregnancy itself is associated, can cause all kinds of complications. And obviously they're rare, but they can occur. And they're more likely to occur at, sort of at older ages. So more likely to have severe bleeding after delivery. Um, it's more likely to need to go to the intensive care unit. Um, all kinds of complications around the delivery. So it definitely can put a toll on a woman's body. On the other end, most women above 40 or 45 who are pregnant carry fine to term with no complications. It's not common, but it just that there's a problem, but it does the risk is increased a little bit to the mother. All right, I feel okay, basically. You should. You- and there's also increased risk, I didn't say, of C section. Also, um, after especially after age 50, it's over 60% rate of C section. Most of that is because of the doctors we recommend it generally, but it's not only because of that. Now, one of the things I noticed on your CV is that you also are an expert in VBAC, uh, vaginal births after C-section, or at least okay. knowledgeable about. And uh, I've had three since my, my twin's birth, which was uh, C-section. Is mm-hmm. this more common in Israel than elsewhere in the world? 
I think it really depends where you are in the world. Um, in Israel, it's quite common, and most hospitals really support it, and there's a general support. Um, in America, it is supported to be back, but it really depends where you are. When I was in St. Louis doing my fellowship in maternal fetal medicine, some patients came from hours and hours away to have VBAC in our hospital because if they're in a very small local hospital that doesn't have good a good blood bank and maybe a full-time anesthesiologist, and maybe they only have one obstetrician who sort of comes and goes, then it's a less safe environment. So there are hospitals in America, at least, that don't permit VBAC. Um, big medical centers, of course, do. Um, but I think in Israel, there's generally a higher tendency towards VBAC among many patients. And part of it is because a lot of people want to have many children, so they want to avoid having many, many repeat C-sections, and they'd rather try for VBAC. After my first birth, again, <laughs> almost mm -hmm. 18 years ago, uh, my roommate in the hospital uh, was being chastised by her doctor, actually, because it was her seventh cesarean section. And she was ultra-Orthodox, and the doctor was pleading with her to speak with her rabbi to get permission to stop, to stop bearing children. How common is this kind of situation? Um, I mean, I tr we try not to chastise the patients, but it is common. There are many, mostly in my experience, Haredi, high ultra orthodox patients who have many children, and if for some reason they need one, a few C sections at the beginning, then it has to continue that way. And I think the record I've seen is 11, but I'm sure that somebody has a higher record than that. And we know that there's increased complications with with multiple C sections. There's more scar tissue inside. There's a higher risk that the placenta won't come out the way it should, which could lead to a hysterectomy. There's more bleeding. We know that multiple C-sections can be problematic. So there's not an absolute number that we say, okay, stop. But it really depends also on the each C-section, what how the surgery went, if there were any complications. But uh, in all, in some populations, it's not uh, the woman or the part the couple need permission from the rabbi in order to stop having children. So the, and then that's their decision. One of the reasons why I made Aliyah is because the society here is based on family versus occupation. Are you finding that uh, in your line of work as well? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a big premium on family here. I see uh, even among the resident physicians here that the day ends more or less at 3.30, 4 o'clock and they go home to their families unless somebody's uh, on call overnight. And in words in America, when I was a resident, I almost never left before six or seven. So I do see that there's more of a premium on spending time with family here, for sure. Thank you so much for your time. Really, I know every minute is precious. You could be called away at any second. Thank you so much for uh, for inviting me. Yofi, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. Mm -hmm.